At a clandestine meeting in a darkened room somewhere in London around 1852, a vision that would shape the future of American occultism appeared in a magic mirror. A young woman clairvoyant spoke an invocation to Azrael, angel of life and death, to begin the session. A figure began to appear on the glass, and the young woman turned pale with terror. The vision was not for her, but one of the circle's adepts, the man who later recorded this episode into his autobiography, Ghostland, writing under the pseudonym of the Chevalier Louis de B. She called to him, and he came and looked over her shoulder, where he beheld a Medusa-like creature glaring back at him from inside the glass. The Chevalier attempted to soothe the girl, telling her it was only an image of bad fortune which he had seen many times before and would likely see again, but the clairvoyant insisted, It is an elementary, and whilst it signifies all you say, it is still an actual existence, not a mere subjective thing. Using the occult power of his will, the Chevalier dismissed the demon from the mirror. Almost instantly, she was replaced by two very different spirits with a far more benevolent disposition. The dark eyes of the one and the lustrous blue of the other were fixed upon us with a depth of sadness, pity, and sorrow which conveyed a whole history of prophetic meaning. Between these figures was displayed an open book upon the pages of which both the CRS and myself read two words. The Chevalier did not convey the pair of words to his reader, leaving them to fill in the blanks for themselves. The girl told the Chevalier that she'd seen this book before. The book, she said, which they thus presented, was one which for the ages they had been endeavoring to inspire some earthly scribe to write, and the Chevalier would have to be the one to write it. If so, the first image is not meaningless, she said, for the Medusa-like spirit of malignity as surely prophecies slander and malice in connection with what is to follow, as the beautiful legionnaires of the stars prophesy that either you or I, or perhaps both, will become their scribe. Twenty-four years later, the clairvoyant who had become the prominent spiritualist medium Emma Harding Britton translated and edited two books by the Chevalier, both with two-word titles, Art Magic, Part Manifesto, Part Manual for Practical Magic, and Part History of Esoteric Theory, was published on a limited subscription basis for the relatively high price of $5, and Ghostland, the Chevalier's autobiography, published later that same year. These would both stir up huge controversies and inspire generations of occultists to follow. The only problem is, nobody knows who the Chevalier was, and people have been trying for over a century to figure it out. For occult historians, this question is a kind of unsolvable mystery, right up there with the fate of the lost colony or the death of Amelia Earhart. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the supreme hierophant of our secret order of alchemical actors with my Ph.D. in things occult. I'm joined by Olivia Litterall, our Grand Master of the Order. Hello! Also joining us for the first time, we have alchemical actor Shannon Landers. Hello! Hi, everyone. Happy to be here. Shannon's sort of our uh, every woman of, of the alchemical actors. She's my every woman. Aw. Right? Thank yes. you. The woman of... Yes. I guess. <laughs> you are every woman. I'm the average You are woman. all I need. <laughs> You're the no, average like, woman. Yeah. <laughs> if we average all women together, we end up with Shannon. That's kind of scary. Honestly, that would be great, though, for the world. That's what... It... Yeah, it's not so yeah, bad. No. It's not so bad. I think it speaks well of, of humanity. We, the members of the Secret, Secret Order, Order of, of Alchemical Actors, do solemnly commit, commit ourselves, ourselves to a full and honest telling 
of the history of the occult as far as we know it. We mostly got it, yeah. How was it? We were kind of at the same time as you, sort of. That's good. No, we're good. Okay, let's talk about that Chevalier, shall we? Let's Chevalier. Yep, let's just do it. Let's Chevalier. Chevalier! Yeah, let's Chevalier all the way. Let's do it. Okay. Let's just do this so we can stop. The Chevalier's first major publication was the highly controversial theoretical and practical book of occultism, Art Magic. His autobiography, Ghostland, may have been rushed to print in order to capitalize on the popular interest Art Magic drew to the Chevalier and his editor, Emma Harding Britton. Not all of this interest was positive. Britton was accused of compiling a copy-and-paste job, corrupting spiritualism with anti-American hierarchical notions of occult power, and disseminating absurd theories of elemental spirits, which existed on a kind of evolutionary scale, evolving from elementals to human spirits and then all the way up to uh, planetary spirits. There were, in fact, some of the main ideas... Uh, oh. These were, in fact, some of the main ideas in art magic. Magical or supernatural belief was in vogue in the 19th century. The spiritualist movement started in America and rapidly spread into the United Kingdom and then Europe and Russia. Spiritualist mediums communicated with the spirits of the dead, much like we see mediums do today on TV and also other places. And they came to believe... You guys know any mediums? Have you ever been to their houses? Oh, um... Uh, I haven't been to one, but she was obsessed with me. Oh. Oh. Interesting. Yeah. It was, she was friends with my mom. And it, it was, it was a weird thing. I should probably not get into it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that'll just be secrets for later. That's just going to be lore for Olivia now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was of the medium, the obsessed medium. Uh, so I actually did my dissertation research on American spiritualism, contemporary spiritualist mediumship, and, and how it's practiced in 21st century America. So I, I have seen many a medium. Yeah, you were with a bunch. Uh, so you can go to spiritualist churches today and, and see them and, and have your spirits read. They came to believe, uh, back in the day, uh, that all supernatural phenomena produced on Earth could be explained as the work of formerly living human spirits. So if you were a spiritualist, you tended to see all of the supernatural world as the work of these human spirits manifesting on Earth with us, and they were all connected up to a god or infinite intelligence that sort of controlled the whole system. Spiritualists also believed that mediumship was a democratic practice, which I mentioned earlier, that people may be naturally inclined to it, but that these people or mediums were not endowed with any special authority. Knowledge and truth came directly from the spirits, not any human mediators, priests, or pastors. The Chevalier contradicted both of these principles by suggesting first that there was a hierarchy of spirits encompassing human souls, stretching down into elementary or nature spirits and up into the higher planetary spirits. Furthermore, he said, mediums subjected themselves to false communications and manipulation by failing to train themselves to control the spirits rather than let the spirits control them. I'm always saying this about both of you, that you are failing to train yourself to control the spirits. Amen. Can I say right? that? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't see why not. I don't, why, why couldn't you say that? to ghosts. Can you say amen to ghosts? Amen to ghosts. That's what I say in the spiritualist church that's why we're not actually <laughs> that's why we don't go that's why it's not working out yeah, yeah. Well, oh oh so in the spiritualist church they do say amen 
Yeah, but they don't say amen ghosts. Or, no, know. they they don't say ghosts. They say spirits. Ghosts, that's a bad word. You don't say ghosts in a spirit. Oh, really? Church. I guess that, that would be a It's insulting taboo. to the spirits. They kick me out. The Chevalier suggested that mediums... I'd get you back in. The Chevalier oh, nice. suggested that mediums... Back through the back door. When I got that pull. Yeah. <laughs> get you in through the kitchen. The Chevalier suggested that mediums train and develop their power over the paranormal, uh, and so he introduced the notion of secret occult brotherhoods, uh, and they lived in both Europe and India, where this training was already taking place. This is how the Chevalier achieved his occult training. Uh, And again, this broke up with all the ideas of spiritualist democratic principles. So the, the, the democratic principle was that the medium just was sensitive to the spirits and open to the spirits and didn't, you know, didn't train or become an authority. They, they didn't have any special power. It was just sort of an accident, and they were to make themselves available to people to channel spirits for them. But the Chevalier is saying a very different thing, that you go to these masters, and the masters train you, and you become a master, and there's this whole hierarchy, not very democratic. Much of this is laid out in Art Magic, which covers a range of material, including the Chevalier's occult ideas, a catalog of theories about the history and anthropology of religion, with pages lifted from Renaissance occult manuals, as I mentioned. Uh, It was published on a limited subscription basis, $5 each, uh, and the run was about 500 copies total, although there was some argument in the press as to whether or not they actually published 500 or if they published many more and just claimed they only did 500 so they could charge more for them. If we adjusted for inflation, $5 would be about $115 today. People do that with makeup palettes today, though. <laughs> like, <laughs> like literally, like, there are companies that will be like, oh, we have a certain amount that we're releasing. And then, like, a week later, they're like, oh, we restocked. And it's like, no, you didn't. You didn't restock that fast. Would you pay $115 for a book? If it's gives me art magic i guess (laughs) if it's promising me some shit maybe but i feel like you guys have to pay those for bio textbooks right literally about to say (laughs) my textbooks are more than that yeah it's probably double that you know those science textbooks cost a fortune like 250 easy and they're not even magical (laughs) yeah Okay, so the average American in the 19th century, much like you guys, not happy to part with that amount because they were living in a regular state of financial uncertainty uh, owing to booms and busts at the time, which, you know, sort of like we're living that again. (laughs) We're back. Back to booms and busts. The book represented a major shift in thinking about religion and the supernatural. Some people hated it. Some people loved it. But nobody could figure out who wrote it. uh, And that was not for lack of trying. So as I mentioned, over the last 150 years, scholars and armchair occultists have produced four candidates, uh, four possible candidates for the Chevalier, because this was a pseudonym. We don't know who this actually was. Candidate number one is Felix de Salmsalm. That's a European uh, who fought in the American Civil War and served as the aide-de-camp for Mexico's Maximilian I during the Franco-Mexican War. And when I say Mexico's Maximilian I, he kind of wasn't Mexico's because although he was the ruler of Mexico, Mexico hated him and ultimately executed him in front of a firing squad. That's Maximilian they executed, not Felix de Salmsalm. It was just his aide-de-camp. <laughs> he got away. He escaped the firing squad. Baron Joseph de Palme is the second candidate. He was an early member of the Theosophical Society and the first man to be cremated in the United States. Oh, that's yeah. a fun fact. It's kind of fun. 
The Duke de Medina Pomar, the adopted son of the noted spiritist and author Marie Countess of Caithness, uh, who was first suggested and has since been withdrawn from contention by Emma Harding Britain's scholar Mark Demarest. And finally, number four, the German theologian Ernst de Bunsen, who, according to the historian Robert Mathiasen, shared the concept of a school for prophets with the Chevalier. And Mathiasen says that only the Chevalier and this guy de Bunsen used the phrase school for prophets. Okay, now, we can make a case for any of these men, uh, but none of them are especially satisfying or convincing cases. I'm going to tell you why. First of all, there's no evidence that Felix de Salmsalm, our American Civil War veteran, or the Duke de Medina Pomar had enough interest in occultism to devote time or attention to its practice. Salmsalm's wife took him to a seance one time, but she appears to have had more interest in what happened there than her husband. He couldn't care less about it. We've all been there. Right? And <laughs> dragging, dragging the boyfriend to the seance, and he's like, I just... He's on his phone, on Snapchat news. Yeah, I know. <laughs> just like women, right? Yeah. <laughs> seances. Women in their seances. And then 30 years later, someone's attributing occult books to you, and you're like, you guys, can't you just leave me alone? My wife, she just made me go to this. I had no idea it would get here. But Medina Pomar uh, was a published author. So, okay, he's kind of like the Chevalier because the Chevalier's got his books. But the Medina Pomar's books were all romance novels about things like Scottish honeymoons. So, not very occulty. Well, it depends on what happens on these honeymoons. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess. If you're doing a little sex magic on your Scottish honeymoon, a little haggis sex magic. Didn't you go to Scotland on your honeymoon? I did go to Scotland on my honeymoon, yeah. Uh, we had a haggis pop. Uh-huh. Haggis pop? That's food. That was before Katie and I decided we would be pescatarian. But we also had uh, your fried fish, your fish and chips. So, yeah, we were on all sides of that. Had your Scottish breakfast. I'm just listing the foods of Scotland. I'm going to quit. I'm going to go ahead and keep going with the episode. People might love that. So is that not what we're here for? <laughs> to list the foods of Scotland. Yeah. That's the, that's the subtitle Rob of the podcast. Rob names what he ate in Scotland for Occult Confessions. <laughs> History of the Occult and the Foods of Scotland. I mean, <laughs> I was like looking for a podcast to listen to. I just kind of like went down a rabbit hole and now here I am. <laughs> it's really a passion project. We've got the Baron de Palm going back to our friend who was cremated. He was probably incapable of the depth or originality of the Chevalier's con- con- contributions. That doesn't come from Ooh. me, but from a man who knew him. Get him! Uh, Damn! <laughs> that's not so. Henry Alcott said this, and he was uh, the president of the Theosophical Society, uh, to which De Bunsen belonged. Uh, and he wrote very little in his lifetime, so it would be odd if if um, if Baron de Palm had any books. Period. Uh, also, yeah, Ernest de Savage. Well, but Ernest de Bunsen did write a lot of books. This is candidate number four. However, getting to that school for prophets. So that's our scholar Max. Uh, what's his name? Not Maximilian. What's his name? Matthiasen. Uh, he said this is the reason we should put these guys together, but uh, this theory doesn't make much sense uh, because al- although both the Chevalier and de Bunsen did have a concept of a school for, in, in the Chevalier's case, occultists, it's not a unique concept uh, shared with the Chevalier since it's also a significant feature of Mormon teaching and practice going back to the 1840s, so the idea is actually bouncing around all sorts of places. The point I'm trying to make here is, and not just about Scottish breakfast, but that there's no smoking guns for any of these men, which is delightful, by the way, and not the smoking gun, the breakfast, uh, and plenty of reason to doubt that they had anything to do with the Chevalier's books. They ate a tomato with breakfast. It's a beautiful thing. Well, this bachelor game is not going very well. No, we're not, we're not meeting anyone that we want to bring home with us. Yeah. 
So we gotta we gotta get it. So so uh, what we need to do. I want to go for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, that that is true. You do know that. <laughs> All we know is that we want to get to Edinburgh to have some breakfast. Yeah, <laughs> the Isle of Skye. Okay, so uh, this is what we're so this is what we're going to do. So we, we've got this mystery; it's not coming out very well. Uh, so, so what we want to do is we want to turn to the autobiography to see if we can pick up any hints that might help us. Britain began publishing the story of the Chevalier's occult adventures, which I've named several times. It was called Ghostland, as a series in her Western Star newspaper before the newspaper was burned to the ground in the Great Boston Fire of 1872. According to Britain, she received a host of requests to bring the Chevalier back, and so she decided to return to the story and transform it into a full-length book. She pieced together the story from letters, notes, and journal entries recorded by two writers. The first was the Chevalier Louis de B., the occult adept and author of Art Magic, and the second was John Cavendish Dudley, a member of the British gentry and the Chevalier's closest friend. So she had all these letters and, and notes from both of them that she compiled. Neither the Chevalier nor Dudley were published under their real names, so we can't really use their names to go on to figure out who they were. The series of papers of which the first number will be found in the following pages are the contributions of a gentleman whose high rank in the society is a less favorable warrant for a strict fidelity to truth than the pure and unimpeachable character he has earned from his fellow men, amongst whom he has moved in many public positions of honorable distinction during the last 50 years. Ghostland detailed the life story of the Chevalier Louis de B from birth to roughly the age of 30. Uh, Chevalier was born to European nobility uh, in India while his father was fighting there. This would have been the early 19th century, the period when the British solidified their colonial hold over India, also other European nations, anxious to share in Britain's gains, joined in the fight. What? Boo, colonialism! (laughs) Boo, colonialism. (laughs) Take that, colonialism. Someone had to say it. Just when you were feeling so good I am about taking yourself. the first stance on <laughs> <laughs> just Yes. Kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to stop. <laughs> it's like walking into a crowded room and saying, I started this party. Yeah. The Chevalier went on to study in Austria, where he met Professor von Marx, who invited the boy to join his occult circle, a branch of the Berlin Brotherhood, as a magnetic subject. Each of the members of the circle had a young partner that they controlled through their magnetic influence so yeah you're a fancy older older gentleman a distinguished gentleman thank you of occult you know abilities but you need someone you can magnetize so they can go doing Mm -hmm. your occult business in the astral plane for you that's me yeah i gotta (laughs) yep (laughs) it's true wow (laughs) perfect and i take you to seances or you take me really and Mm -hmm. i and I go on Snapchat news, right? Yeah. So, what? So, Von Marx drafted the Chevalier to be his magnetic subject, much as you two have drafted each other. By all accounts, Von Marx had no family. He was married earlier in his life, but had since divorced on bad terms. Channeling his magnetic energy into an entranced Lewis, Von Marx could set Lewis's spirit free from his body to roam the world, along with the spirits of other boys and girls magnetically, magnetically controlled by the Brotherhood. I was so loose from the body, save by the invisible cord which connected me with it. I was in the realm of the soul, the soul of matter, and that was the real force which kept matter together. I could just as easily break the atoms apart and pass through them as one can put a solid body into the midst of water or air. 
So how young were That's you said younger question, yeah. people? Like was it? It's like teenagers. Okay. That yeah. Wasn't like children. Uh, there was consent-ish like, involved. Sure. Okay. Why did it have to be young? Like, was there a specific reason? I think that, are they more susceptible? Is it like I an think apprenticeship that's right. yeah. almost? Or like... More susceptible. They don't have any life commitments, right? So they, they don't have other things to do. They don't have to like, you know, pay the mortgage or be a lawyer or something. So yeah. they can just sit around and be like magnetized. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to bear in mind at this time period, we're putting children in factories, right? This is that the is thing true. Charles we, Dickens we, is writing against. So this isn't so bad. Of all the things you could be really doing... I don't care about child labor laws yet. Mirror gazing, not so bad. Through these spirit projections, Lewis visited the meetings of other occult circles and caused astrally projected mischief in old world castles and estates. So in other words, when you think you're in a haunted castle, you're not. It's just some teenager projecting his soul into your castle. That's even more terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Who wants a teenager projecting their soul onto you? Preteens? No, thank you. Yeah. Complete new take on Scooby-Doo. Oh, my God. All of this, or Casper, I guess, all of this was achieved through the wonders of Von Marx's magnetic powers. So Von Marx would, you know, put him into the state and then use his magnetic powers to keep him in the state so he could go around haunting castles and stuff. That's kind of sick. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Like, I wouldn't mind that life, probably. (laughs) So this brotherhood did not believe in the survival of the soul after death. On one of his flying soul adventures, the Chevalier was addressed by an adept at the occult circle of a Baron von S. at Hamburg. Tell Felix von Marx he and his companions are searching in vain. They spend their time in idle efforts to confirm a myth and will only reap the bitter fruits of disappointment and mockery. The soul of man is compounded from the aromal life of elementary spirits, and like the founders and authors of its being, only sustains an individualized life, so long as the vehicle of the soul holds together and remains intact. The Circle believed that humans had spirits and that ghosts existed, but they believed that all these phenomena were caused by the astral bodies of dead and living people, which would eventually decompose and fade just as the physical bodies. So we don't have an eternal soul, but like a temporary soul that eventually disappears as our physical body disappears. The Chevalier makes friends with a girl his age named Constance Muller who tells him that the Brotherhood's belief that all supernatural power comes from elemental or magical beings and that the soul does not survive after death are actually false. Constance is calling them out. She is also beautiful and ethereal and seems plagued by the prospect of death, which she feels is very near and coming quickly for her. Lewis is naturally infatuated with her and tells her he would do anything for her, anything to save her from the fate she sees looming over her with increasing intensity as the days pass. This is a bit melodramatic. She's like seeing herself about to die. What to say? Oh my God. At last, she's murdered. Uh, She's murdered by her magnetic controller. So the, the guy she was trusting ends up killing her. That's how it be sometimes. Under, she, she dies under mysterious circumstances, and her spirit comes to Lewis to prove her point that the soul is eternal. She's like, hey, I'm dead, but I'm also here. Man, as a perfected organism, cannot die, Lewis. The mold in which he is formed must perish in order that the soul may go free. The soul lives on in pure spirit, in the spirit realms, gloriously bright, radiantly happy, Strong, powerful, eternal, infinite, that is heaven. 
that is to dwell with God. Such souls are his angels. Lewis is amazed by this vision of Constance, but he's not persuaded. The theories of the various... Right. Don't believe it. Not real. Not in front of my face. <laughs> She's like sitting down to tea with him. She's, no, real. For real. I'm dead, but I'm also here. He's like, nope. Nope. Don't buy it. Well, I guess he, you could, he could say, well, you just died. So this is just your, you know, rotting ethereal spirit that will eventually disappear. Okay. So the theories of the various occult brotherhoods plague him. He's wondering if Constance might be a lingering spirit, a fleeting psychic essence of that dead person. This argument over the mortality or immortality of the soul, embodied by Constance in the early chapters of the story, suggests why the spiritualist medium, Emma Harding Britton, our intrepid editor who brought the Chevalier story to everyone's attention and compiled it herself lovingly, it tells us why she took an interest in this story in the first place. Both spiritualism and the occult revival that followed it were occult practices in the way we use the word occult on the podcast, but... At the time, occult meant something very different from spiritualist. Britain and other 19th century occultists like Helena Blavatsky and Pascal Beverly Randolph argued that proper occultism involved an active control over forces that were not limited to the spirits of the dead. A larger range of otherworldly beings, as we mentioned, could be actively controlled. In order for the Chevalier to become a true occult adept, he would also have to make the transition from being a passive agent of the powerful von Marx to an active master of the supernatural realms, not being so much a medium as an occult master. So, the Chevalier's father died, and he was transferred to a school in England. The professor became his adopted father and went with him, and together they joined a British brotherhood calling itself the Orphic Circle. But they got bored with the Orphic Circle's experiments, and they decided to set off on a series of adventures. They began by traveling through Scotland, where they had a lovely breakfast. They cured... That's not, that's not part of it. <laughs> well, we can hope. We can put that in our story. We're going to assume that they must have had a hearty and delightful breakfast. How else could the plot continue? <laughs> <laughs> probably also a meat pie of some kind. They cured a group of possessed peasants and went around giving seances in private homes. But they began to get sensitive to the fact that they were only attracting gawkers and scoffers and decided it was time to give up seances for a little while because you get tired of people gawking and scoffing at you. Right around that time, they just so happened to come across a beautiful gypsy princess. Beautiful gypsy princess. Uh, this was the fortune teller Juanita, who the professor referred to as a witch among her people. She read both of their fortunes and perceived the occult power in both men, and she invited them to return with her to the gypsy camp where they might learn the secrets of gypsy magic. She had ordered two tents to be got ready for us. The red fires were smoldering in dotted heaps over the wild heath. A few lanterns still burned at intervals on the crossed sticks that upheld them. The beautiful and wayward being, Juanita, deigned to select me as the special object of her favor during our escapade, and by way of disposing of Professor von Marx, for whom she conceived a corresponding aversion, not unmixed with awe, she assigned him a guide, her younger brother, Guido. Taking advantage of the gypsy princess's affection, the Chevalier asked to know the secret of palmistry, her art of fortune-telling. Mark you, senor. I have two ways of knowing. 
I first look into the eyes, and there I see the soul, see its joys and sorrows, its weary travail and happy hours. I see its love and hates, and many of the path that it has taken the body, and many more it will have to follow. As to the hand, I feel, not see its meaning. And few hands are so difficult to read as yours, Senor, for your heart is locked away in the keeping of yon dark master of spirits. Juanita was referring to von Marx. The hold the professor had developed over her, his magnetic subject had reached a point of danger for the young and inexperienced Louis, but our poor chevalier was completely unaware of it. The professor suddenly received a message that called him home, and he left the chevalier behind. While away, the, the professor died unexpectedly, leaving oh, the chevalier shocked and despondent. Yeah, right? Turn. T- big twist. The chevalier pined away in the absence of his occult master, slash magnetizer, and he despaired of his life. I finally determined I would starve myself to death and thus gained time to see the world passing away and myself fading out of time before I was launched upon that ocean of oblivion, which had swallowed up my better self. On the verge of death, the Chevalier Louis de B. had a tremendous vision. I saw germs of soul, semi-spiritual natures clothed with semi-material bodies corresponding to the varieties of the mineral, vegetable, and animal kingdoms. I perceived that for millions of miles in space, beyond the surface of the sun world, were glittering zones and belts of many-colored radiance, forming a hazy rainbow, a, a photosphere of sparkling fire mist, visible to the eye of spirit alone, all crowded up with lands and worlds and spheres, people with happy angel spirits of the sun. I heard the voice of my guardian spirit tell me, when all shall be revealed in the light of spiritual reality, matter shall prove to be the phantom, spirit, the substance of creation. In Art Magic, the Chevalier argued for the logic of sun worship as the earliest form of religion, and that all subsequent religions were corruptions of this original, more pure idea. God is a central sun who gives light and heat to our sun, which then nourishes each of us, our personal astral spirits. So it all comes from the sun. This explains why the particular configuration of the suns and planetary spirits at our birth reflects something about us via astrology, which I think Olivia believes in. I mean, I don't know how much I actually, like, give it credence, but it's fun. You're down for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm down for the fun. Yeah. So you is know. the Chevalier. Yeah. Chevalier so the whole... is down. <laughs> you guys have that in common. Maybe you're the Chevalier. Oh, God. <laughs> Wow, I didn't even know. The whole universe is composed of matter, force, and spirit, with spirit being the eternal aspect of ourselves and everything around us. We've all got some spirit in us, from the rocks to the trees to us. Uh, And this all emanates from the sun as the spiritual component of physical light. So the sun is both putting off physical light that, like, you know, makes plants grow, but it's also putting off this spiritual light that makes our souls be souls. Yeah. This is how the Chevalier explains it in Ghostland. The universe of matter became translucent, and throughout its illimitable spaces, I saw that creation was filled with piercing beams from the central sun of being. The external of 
visible shaft of every ray was formed of physical light or matter in its most sublimed condition. This shaft was lined by a ray of astral light or force, and this again by spiritual light or the element from which is formed the imperishable soul. On the verge of death, just before he breathed his last, so now the Chevalier is about to die, the Chevalier was saved by a British friend, John Cavendish Dudley. Dudley brought the Chevalier back to his house to help in his recovery. What followed was a long period of seances and rituals through which Dudley attempted to separate the professor's spirit from Lewis's. So basically, their spirits are so closely aligned that even after he's dead, the professor's like clinging to him and dragging him down into the grave. Oh, that's rude. Right? Also pretty goth. Yeah, that right? is. It is. It is <laughs> so, very like Edgar Allan Poe. Like. Yeah. I'm all right with it. I, I'm, I'm down. I'm down. I'm down it's for that. It's kind of romantic, actually. He yeah. loves him. No. He just wants to be with him in hell <laughs> in or death, wherever. Hell. Yeah. It's like some amorphous spirit realm. So their long occult association had resulted in this unnatural bond, which is transcending the separation of death. Lewis is so connected to the professor that in Dudley's house, he sometimes seems to become the professor in manner and speech. Oh, well, that's a problem. Remember I mentioned at the beginning that the professor had been married and that it didn't end well. Oh, God. Well, his ex-wife, Ernestine, is brought by Dudley's house, a living woman, and promises to stay with Lewis to try and drive the professor's spirit out of Lewis through sheer animosity because the professor hated her so much. <laughs> so, That's so funny. Yeah, they're like, so you want to hang out in this kid's body? Well, wait, wait till we show you who he's hanging out with. You want to get rid of a spirit, just bring the ex-wife over? Honestly, like that... <laughs> I, I cannot think of anything that would make me more mad as a spirit. <laughs> like, like, oh, come on. You gotta involve them. Be like, like, you're really bringing my ex from, like, ten years ago? Really? Wow, real mature. <laughs> so, so Von Marx's spirit is like, okay, I give up. And they convene the Orphic Circle to facilitate what they call Lewis's spiritual rebirth. Uh, and this allows Von Marx's spirit to depart peacefully. And Lewis is born again now as a master in his own right rather than a subject of a master. Well, that's sick for him. He came up on the upside. Yeah, he's moving right along. Otherwise, we wouldn't care about any of this. <laughs> that's true. Here we are. So the Chevalier is finally on his own, and he begins on the path to becoming an adept in his own right, journeying into the occult worlds of elementary and planetary spirits without the aid of the professor's magnetic influence. He's just doing it on his own now. He sets out on a new quest to discover the ultimate occult truth of the soul, also this life, also the next life. He takes a position as a military officer and travels to India, the place of his birth, where he begins to learn the ways of the Near, near Eastern Fakirs. I'm sorry, what was that? It's the Fakirs. Rob, please. Uh, we are F-A- an, uh, an R-rated podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we might be, but this is, it is F-A-K- Ears, fakirs. Yes, thank you for clarifying. On an evening stroll, he is out looking over a crypt in the remote mountains of Ellora uh, when he's approached by the Indian adept Chundra Uddin. Yep. Dean immediately recognized. What were you going to say? Something about Chundra? No, I was just be like, "That's my bitch, right there." Oh, you've heard of him. You know <laughs> yeah. him. You know him well. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> Dean immediately recognized that the Chevalier was a gifted occultist and invited the Chevalier to visit his hole. Yeah, I mean, 
never mind. I'm good. <laughs> That's what he said. He was like, hole come on down to my occult hole no, where we do hole. occult things. Okay, you did say hole. Yeah. Sometimes you yeah, just got to invite hole. your friends wow. over to your hole. It's, an, it's another word, I guess. It was like in, in for Chundra Dean. It's <laughs> Yeah. He, it's... he doesn't want to say, come to my super sick pad because he doesn't want to brag. He's like, it's just a hole. It's just a hole in the ground. <laughs> nothing I nothing d- fancy. I dug it yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> the bar real low, so he's pleasantly surprised. It's like, about wow. as shallow as a grave. <laughs> so, it's at least a pit. Like, yeah. Give yourself some credit. <laughs> in the words of invitation he addressed to me, he interwove in a pointed way, impossible for me to mistake, the watchword of an association whose solemn bonds had set such a seal of secrecy even upon my very thoughts to say nothing of my lips that I started and, and shivered whilst the words fell upon the listening air, as if their commonplace expression had been the deepest blasphemy. Had a peal of thunder broken the stillness of that breathless moonlit night, I could not have been more startled than to hear those forbidden words. Few there are on earth who know of the existence of such an association, fewer who can claim fraternity with it. Yet of that few, one stood before me now that was inevitably proved. At the appointed hour, the Chevalier returns to the mountains for the meeting. He's suddenly blindfolded and abducted and brought deep under the temple where he finds his psychic energies repressed by a stronger force. That's how we got Shannon here today. Yeah, I mean, that's how I go to most places, honestly. I don't get out much, so you kind of have to do that. Yeah, you really do. You just refuse. Mm. Hmm. But you just blindfold her and she's good. Yeah. Calms down. (laughs) It calms me down. It really does. Uh, Sensory deprivation. handled traveling well. No. Like a parakeet. When the blindfold is removed, he sees himself surrounded by walls adorned with the images of Hindu and Egyptian gods, along with Chaldaic tablets, planispheres, astrological charts, and scenes from Babylonian, Assyrian, and Chaldaic history. So just ancient things. There are worst rooms to, you know, wake up after being blindfolded in. Yeah, that's like the bottom of the list I have. Right. (laughs) Yeah, most rooms. That's a pretty, it's a pretty nice room to wake up in. It's actually pretty refreshing. Yeah, not like a yeah. murder room, <laughs> you know. <laughs> or even just like your regular room. Oh, okay. It's not like just there's an ACDC poster on the wall. Well, like He's got some stuff to look at. I guess at. I was thinking most of the time I get blindfolded and taken somewhere. It's not, <laughs> it's not <laughs> like... Murder room. <laughs> no, it's like, oh. <laughs> it's like things hanging from the ceiling and chains and, you know. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta quit getting abducted. Yeah, I really do. It's a problem. At the small opening of the horseshoe was a second cavern, honed out of the solid rock and so designed as to form an immense raised platform or stage, on the floor of which was a spread of carpet or grassy turf or an imitation so finely executed that the difference could not be detected. A pair of gigantic sphinxes supported either side of this noble rostrum, and an immense image of the winged bull of Nineveh was suspended in all probability by magnetic force in mid-air between high vaulted roof and the grassy carpet beneath. Ranged in a semicircle midway on the platform were seven tripods supporting braziers, from which ascended color flames and wreaths of deliciously perfumed vapors, whose intoxicating odors filled the temple. Behind each tripod, seated on thrones fashioned of burnished silver so as to represent a glittering star, were seven dark-robed figures whose masked faces and shrouded forms left no opportunity of judging their sex or semblance. 
After being promised that his deepest desires would be heard and gratified in vowing to serve humankind with the power discovered through this society's occult studies, the Chevalier is immersed in the vastness of the universe, with the assembly disappearing from around him, having his second great big celestial vision of his life. In this vision, he discovers that the whole universe is alive, and that everything pivots around a central son of being, or God, at the middle of all things. Now, here's the thing about all of this stuff that happened to the Chevalier. In my opinion, a lot of it is actually true. Uh, but also, in my opinion, a lot of it didn't happen to anyone who we could possibly identify as a Chevalier. It happened to somebody else. Ooh. Uh, but don't ask me, because oh. uh, I can't tell you this episode. Okay. Uh, we're going to do that next episode. Oh, I was just getting ready to do my drum roll. I was going to add to the suspense. Yeah. She literally, her her timpani, her, the other kinds. Go ahead and put those away. The other kinds. (laughs) I couldn't think of any other And the other drums. They're all out. What can I say? All the drums. Timpani and others. And company. The sticks, they hit them with. Yep. Those are drumsticks. Put them away. (laughs) Because it's it's time for Olivia to declare this meeting closed. I hereby adjourn. And declare close this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. Brandon Walls was doing the voice of the Chevalier for us to, today. We also had uh, the voice of Sean Priest Whoa. and uh, Lucy Bond in the mix. Uh, joining me around the table, I had Olivia Literal, our grandmaster. Hello and goodbye. Shannon Landers, who's uh, still trying to get her drums put away there. It has been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, and, uh, you know, before we go, Shannon, I, I think we should share a little fun fact with you Ooh, since this is your first fun episode. Fact. Uh, fun fact. Fun uh, fact. So Shannon loves corgis. Yes, I do. I do love a good corgi. <laughs> All corgis. You, no, she, I was about to say. She, she went to a corgi parade. She's made corgi-themed pottery. Uh, she's very into corgis. Yeah, I go to one corgi parade. And, like, yes. all of a sudden, To be fair, you have a corgi backpack. Yeah. You have... Yeah, you've got a, some paraphernalia. This just seems like a hobby, right? But here's the fun thing about this. Shannon doesn't have a corgi. No. No. But I have friends with corgi. There's a corgi, like, adjacent. Corgi adjacent, oh, yeah. yes. You are corgi adjacent. Yeah. Right. And that's that's on math right yeah. there. <laughs> that's why we go to community college. Yes, sir. <laughs> to be corgi adjacent. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. Is that it? I'm trying to think of my sorry. Corgi adjacent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I have this whole theory about corgis too. You know. What's that? What's that? Oh, well, did did Darwin not tell you? Darwin (laughs) did not speak to me personally. (laughs) Um, no, I'm not. Okay, so I have this whole. Didn't see his TED talk. No. We're real close, we're buds. Oh, okay. (laughs) But like, have think about it. Yeah. Have you ever seen the connection before between like guinea pig and a corgi? Hear me out. No, I have a connection that Darwin would make. Yes, yes. Think about they're both long, fuzzy animals with tiny little legs. There's got to be something there. What are you? What are you saying? I'm saying we started off the guinea pig, and now here we are with the corgis. So did mankind make (laughs) corgi out of guinea pig? Did we like breed them into being a a show dog? They like had this uh, guinea pig, and you're like, I want more of it, so they made it bigger. Oh, they they wanted it to be like a capybara sized. 
<laughs> you want it? Oh, I see. But, I, but Shannon, the guinea pig is a rodent as opposed as is to the, the corgi. What? Which is a canine. Well, the canine had to come from somewhere. Where's the science? So show me the science. Show me the My name science. is... Rob C. Thompson, I am the Supreme Hierophant, and I am signing off. Thank you for listening to Alchemical Actors. We are copyrighted by Audac Theatre Group, LLC. Bye! <laughs> Bye! Thanks. Thanks for staying this long, I guess. <laughs>